tuning in to Olympic Broadcasting Services. So our commitment is that we will retain the integrity and the high quality of this production. We do not want um, to make uh, compromises there and concessions there, unless for some reason we are obligated to do. Yanis Exarkos, director of OBS, on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm your host, Ed Hula. Thanks for joining us for this latest podcast with leading figures in the world of international and Olympic sport. Our guest today leads the army of technicians, researchers, and broadcasters that fall under the command of Olympic Broadcasting Services, the IOC-owned company based in Madrid that produces the host broadcast signal from the Olympics. Giannis Exarchos has led OBS since just after the London Olympics and was part of the original team formed a decade earlier when OBS was created. Born in Greece, he's worked on both sides of the camera and microphone before becoming a top executive at Greek national broadcaster ART. In addition to overseeing OBS, Exarchos is also executive director of the Olympic Channel, the -the over-the-top network that offers thousands of hours of content, and uh, it has been slightly affected by the pandemic, not to mention the impact of postponing the Tokyo Olympics by one year has had on OBS and the host broadcasting operations. Giannis Exarchos, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very, very much for for having me, Uh, Ed. You know, it gives me great pleasure to be catching up again and to be listening to a voice that for me is so much connected with with everything Olympic. So it's, uh, again, like like being in the zone when talking to you. And it's a pleasure to hear your voice, too. And it's it's a difficult adjustment all of us are making from the regular contact we would have face-to-face contact at places around the world to this uh, this digital contact that is becoming the the way our our professional lives are being run these days correct and it's uh, and obviously we discovered a lot of things that we we sort of suspected that we were able to do but also i think we have discovered the limitations also of the digital world which is essentially this 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 boundary of where humans become analog and are analog and um, and deep down you know especially in the creative industries the human connection and the human interaction is at the end of the day a very important factor there are a number of things that that you can do today digitally it's it's, a, it's an incredible help and and uh, and support all these tools and and ourselves and personally I'm a, I have been a cheerleader for for this digital transformation the way broadcast uh, works but uh, I must must tell you that after a few months of confinement, you know, missing the physical interaction with with your colleagues, uh, discussion, you know, create creative ideas, ideation, all that, really is facilitated by by personal physical presence. And you have several hundred employees, workers in Madrid. How? What is your staffing right now? 
Correct. The, the uh, total number of personnel, um, uh, the permanent personnel in the planning period for uh, OBS is 166. And they come from more than 30 different countries. And we have another 95 of st our staff for the Olympic channel. Of course, during the games, we uh, grow exponentially. You know, in, uh, in Tokyo, the plan is that the whole staff working for the host broadcasting will be probably around um, 7,000, just, just to give an idea. Now, on your immediate operations in Spain, um, where the virus struck very hard, it must have been uh, very difficult circumstances uh, for you and your staff, particularly March, April, when this first was taking hold. It was challenging because, as everybody knows, uh, Spain was one of the first and, and very strong hotspots of the um, outbreak of the pandemic. Um, and it hit us at an interesting point in time, actually, um, because at the same time, we already had a very significant operation, not just in Madrid, but also in Tokyo. We were in the last stages of finalizing the fit out, the construction of all the TV studios and facilities for broadcasters. And we had also in Tokyo hundred a team of 154 people, uh, either some of our employees or freelancers that working for us or some vendors that would work for us. So we had a very significant team also in Tokyo. So the first things that, that we did was, and, and for me, uh, of course, and, and for all in the company, the, the safety and the health of, of the team is of paramount importance. So we decided to take measures of confinement and working remotely, actually before the government of Spain and the government of Madrid uh, took these measures. So uh, seeing what was happening in Italy at the time, we decided um, to encourage all our staff to ask actually all our staff to start working from home. Uh, we were helped by the fact that we had already put in place means and tools and ways of working um, that would uh, facilitate um, uh, virtual working and digital working and remote working because of the nature of what we do and because Tokyo was coming. Uh, we are a little bit used uh, to be communicating in OBS and, and the channel uh, digitally because um, a significant amount of the team is always traveling somewhere. So for us, it's, we're a little bit used. We have never done it in such an extensive way, um, but we did it at in, and it worked from day one. And it's, I think for me, the, the big success was that it worked also on the front of the Olympic Channel, which is not just, uh, you know, planning for the games. The Olympic Channel is an always one 24 by 7 operation, digital operation. It controls also linear versions around the world, like in the United States. So it's 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 a quite comprehensive broadcast operation. And we transitioned into remote working within less than 24 hours. And that means uh, still producing, still editing, still publishing content. At the time, also, we had the um, 
uh, the preliminaries of boxing, the, quali the Olympic qualifications going on in London, and the channel was the primary broadcaster of the event. So we were also covering remotely an event, and we managed to do that. And, uh, you know, I will never forget the the, the, uh, the exceptional performance of, uh, of the team and what has everybody uh, done to make this as uh, seamless as possible. So it's been uh, now exactly three months, essentially, of confinement, working remotely. Uh, I think that most of the things have, have worked pretty well, both on the um, uh, channel side and on the OBS side. Uh, but of course, we have reached the point where we would like to, to, to have more personal interaction and as things get better now in, in Spain, uh, relaxation of measures, we're thinking that as of um, June 22nd, uh, probably we will have some people going back to our premises, um, but not more than 30%. Working remotely will still remain the norm. And what about the prospects for travel? When was the last time you ventured out of Spain and when do you think you might be able to go to Tokyo again? I cannot recall how many decades ago was the last time that I had not traveled personally for three consecutive months, probably more than, than 30 years. When the outbreak uh, broke in, um, in Europe, actually I was just coming back from Tokyo at the time, and I haven't traveled since. Now, uh, as I said, when the Tokyo, uh, when uh, when the uh, we had the explosion of the pandemic in Tokyo, we had a team of 154. Some of them were locals; they, they, they were Japanese colleagues, um, like 35 or 40 of them. But the rest were uh, from different parts of the world, most of them from from Spain, and we have relocated them all during these two months, as soon as they would be finishing uh, some works that still needed to be done in, in Tokyo, they came back. When do we start again traveling? I would assume that as things go potentially near uh, the end of summer, it will be possible. We will start uh, again needing to travel a little bit to, to Tokyo and also I would say to Beijing. With Beijing, that we shouldn't forget, comes only months after Tokyo now. We have uh, re-engaged. We have done a complete replanning in collaboration with the organizing committee of the work that needs to be done. Actually, we will use this next month in order to focus a lot on Beijing because for Tokyo we were almost ready. So I believe that traveling hopefully uh, will start again, but in a moderate and very um, um, careful way uh, near the end of the summer, unless we have unpleasant surprises, of course. We need to be prepared for everything. And we're hearing warnings about that, worries about that here in the United States. It's possible it could happen in other parts of the world, too. I guess there's just a, a, a flexibility, a realization that things are could change. Correct. And, and, and things have changed. And I think we will be living in a fluid situation for some time in the future. And we shouldn't forget, there has been a lot of emphasis in uh, um, uh, the outbreak and also the de-escalation in, in Europe, to some extent also de-escalation in uh, New York and so on. But we shouldn't forget that as we speak, the pandemic has not yet peaked in the whole world. 
So uh, if you follow the, the indicators of the World Health Organization, another organization, you will see that the famous curve of new uh, incidents, incidents on a global basis continues to grow. So the situation may have improved a lot in Europe, in China, in uh, parts of the United States, but on a global basis, we're not there yet. And as we know, um, the um, virus uh, respects no boundaries and no frontiers. And this is why it's very likely that, that we may have a resurgence. I'm not an expert in that, but I'm saying that, that from a point of view of planning and state of mind, we should always remember that it's not over. We still need to be vigilant and we still need to be very, very flexible in terms of planning. Anything can happen at any given moment. And one of the extraordinary impacts, effects of the uh, pandemic has been the postponement of the Tokyo Olympics by one year, something that's never happened, never happened before. And it comes just, you know, four or five months, literally on the eve of the Olympic Games. What happens with the International Broadcast Center, the IBC, this nerve center, technology nerve center of the Olympic Games? It's this big piece of real estate. Yep, as you know very well, Ed, it takes um, uh, quite a long time to, to set up all the facilities, first of all to plan, but then also to install the facility for the broadcast center. This is uh, a broadcast center that facilitates the work of more than 20,000 Broadcasters. There isn't another single event in the world that gathers so many media from so many different countries, and it it is a quite uh, quite complex and heavy um, facility from a technological point of view. So, as I was saying in March, when the uh, when COVID arrived, we were actually finalizing the fit out the construction of the broadcast spaces, the studios for broadcasters, the production facilities, and so on. We had already installed 30% of our equipment, and the vast majority of our equipment was already present in Tokyo. More than 560 containers full of equipment. So at that point in time, we had to stop the work. We finished the work of construction. This is all done. And we had to um, um, uh, close down and, and make sure that uh, it will remain safe for the technical installations that we had already done. The rest of the equipment had to be transferred to our warehouse facility that we keep and maintain in Tokyo. And then we started discussions jointly with the organizing committee about how we're going to go uh, uh, for for next year. As you know, the um, uh, objective of the committee is to maintain exactly the same venues for the Games in 2021, including the non-competition venues like the Olympic Village and the IBC and the MPC. Uh, obviously, this is uh, an inconvenience. There were already shows planned for the year 2021. This is a huge uh, exhibition center, a very, very, very nice facility. So the organizing committee is currently under discussions with the municipal government of Tokyo to retain the space for the games, to keep um, the spaces that we have built out and the uh, equipment that we have placed. If they can use in between some of the other space, of course, they, they, they should and they're more than welcome to do. But the understanding is that this facility will remain the IBC 
see for the games in 2021. Same thing as the MPC, the main press center, which is right next door at the other side of this facility. But are you going to have to look at this facility uh, in 2021 from the perspective of workplace changes forced by the coronavirus pandemic? Do you need to look at a an uh, at a at a IBC that has room for social distancing? Uh, the question actually relates to the whole broadcast operation. So once we made sure that we could, um, um, as soon as we had the outbreak, our first concern was, of course, to secure the IBC. The second thing was to secure the capability to deliver the games next year. Uh, the equipment that we need, all the vendors or the companies that collaborate with us for the games, we, we make more than 140 major contracts and we hire, you know, thousands and thousands of freelancers. So the first thing was to provide comfort to them and to discuss with them about renewal our collaboration for next year. Almost 99% of that has already been done. The second thing that we started doing after that was to start thinking about the broadcast operations in the event that there are still social distancing or similar measures next year. So we are currently running an analysis of the whole chain of activity, the whole workflows for broadcasters and for OBS uh, in every single area of the game. So it's not just the IBC, it's also the broadcast compounds in the venues, the commentary positions, the uh, media transport and so on, to identify where potentially there may be issues if there are measures in place. Now, the health and safety of the games is the responsibility of the, as it should, of the organizing committee because they need to ensure uh, that they comply with local uh, directives and regulations and that there is a consistent approach. But precisely because of the uh, quite special nature of broadcasting and quite special nature of broadcasting, especially in the Olympics, we believe that we can contribute and help. So we have started developing plans about how different areas can can operate uh, under conditions of uh, social distancing. We had to do that already for our own building here in Madrid, where we do have broadcast operations, especially with the channel. So we design how the, the space can be deployed, how it can be used, procedures, protocols, and so on. We are monitoring the first events that start emerging, sport events that start taking place, you know, some football here in Europe, in Germany, here in Spain, well, they started yesterday. So we are monitoring, um, we have close relationships with most of the broadcasters that are doing operations there. And also we have um, engaged, actually re-engaged um, uh, a consultant company on health and safety that we use always in the games which is very specialized in broadcasting and uh, and filmmaking. So they, they address all the specificities of what we do. And on top of that, of course, we exchange information and ideas with some of our major broadcasters that are, their operations are ongoing. They face issues that we may face next year on a daily basis. And we get very valuable information from them, like our colleagues in NBC, uh, you know, they need to sustain their operations in Stanford and elsewhere, they're taking measures. We discuss a lot about what are best practices. So I believe that um, no matter what the situation, we will have 
a plan next year for operating, even if we are forced to operate under some conditions of uh, social distancing. It's not an easy thing. It's very complicated. But also, I believe that people in general in the world get a little bit more trained and accustomed to be following safety protocols. And we're talking with uh, Olympic Broadcasting Services Chief Yanis Exarchos on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. Will the will the 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 product will the TV coverage of the Tokyo Olympics be markedly different as a result of the coronavirus precautions as a result of what's happened with the postponement? I think uh, one fundamental foundational moment, I would say, in the development of the postponement was um, the meeting between um, the IOC president, Thomas Bach, and the um, Japanese president. Prime Minister, Mr. Abe, where they agreed that, that the games, of course, need to be postponed because of what's going on in the world. But but the postponement for 2021 is postponement of the games as we know them. So games uh, that are uh, of the same, let's say, scope, we're talking about the same venues, the same scope, uh, the same sports, no reduction of the core of what the games are. Same number of athletes, same participation of all countries. So the core of the games will be protected and will remain the same. So will the coverage of the games. So the comprehensive coverage that we had in mind will be protected. This is our current plan. And we're talking here about uh, potentially up to 9,500 hours of production across uh, all uh, different platforms for linear television, for digital, for social media, because we're not only doing uh, the traditional production for for, uh, linear television, we're doing now massively uh, also coverage for social media, for digital, to help our broadcasters and so on. So our commitment is that we will retain the integrity and the high quality of this production. We do not want um, to make uh, compromises there and concessions unless for some reason we are obligated to do. Now, this is what will make it, so to speak, on the screen, on the glass, whether it's the the, the screen of a mobile phone or of television. However, we do see some opportunities potentially to actually accelerate some of the plans we have started having uh, for some time now. Um, in Olympic broadcasting, we have developed a roadmap of, about transitioning um, the broadcast operation more and more into digital, virtual, and cloud-based processes. Precisely because of the size and complexity of the operation, we felt that the developing um, technologies, especially around cloud technologies, provide a unique opportunity to make uh, the broadcast operations far more efficient. Less burden, less presence in the host city, uh, more things moving to the cloud, potentially less costs also for the broadcasters. And this is why we have already put in place some tools and some products that will help broadcast do that and that release some pressure from the host city. You know that we have developed together with Alibaba a service that we call uh, OBS Cloud, which is a whole set of services that broadcasters can pick up from the cloud. They don't need to be in the IBC, they don't even need to be in the host city. What I see happening is that with COVID, 
there is an increase in the adoption of all these things that we, we, we thought will start being adopted more and more after Beijing. It's very clear that broadcasters feel far more comfortable now with all these new services and some of them they are, they are obligated to do it because they want to reduce uh, local presence they want to reduce costs and so on already for tokyo i must say that we had managed uh, with all these um, uh, new uh, initiatives to reduce what we call the broadcast footprint in the host city so the broadcast center of tokyo is 20 percent smaller already than what it was in Rio. We helped the committee, they didn't have to, to build an additional uh, annex to the existing venue. Uh, so there was huge savings there in order to facilitate the traditional size of the IBC. And we reduced by almost 25% the presence in the venues. This doesn't mean that the, that the coverage is less. The coverage is going to be multiple times more. We're doing things we haven't done before. We will be doing UHD, HDR. Um, uh, we will be doing a lot of new things. So. Uh, on, on um, if I may say that, that on the front line, on the end product, I think that we will manage and we will try to maintain the quality of the product we had designed. But uh, behind the scenes, we will try to make the operation as efficient as possible, to simplify things, to provide more opportunities to broadcasters to pick up things remotely, to work from home and also to have the organizing committee not to have to give us so much space and so many facilities to, to service us. It is a catalyst. COVID is, you know, somebody said that what many CEOs in the world cannot, uh, will not, would not be able to achieve in five years. COVID, in terms of digital transformation, will achieve in three months, and it's a reality. <laughs> There's massive adoption. Now, one thing, one thing that has not been settled is uh, whether... Uh, spectators will be allowed in the in the venues during the Olympics. That would be a, a really radical departure from uh, the way the the games and sporting events are conducted. But that's the way that's going to start. Live events will will, will return uh, this year. What about the possibility of uh, of stadiums that are that are empty of spectators in Tokyo? I need to give you one answer which is professional and one answer which is uh, personal and emotional. Uh, the presence of spectators in a live sports event from a uh, purely professional broadcast point of view is a very important factor for the quality and the impact that an event has. I think that now that the world will be exposed more and more in many more events in the absence and big events in the absence of spectators, the absence will make itself uh, evident and present in, in a way that people had not realized. I think a lot of people will start realizing uh, what a strong contribution live spectators have to the quality of an event, even to the sporting quality. And this is why in, in many games, you know, it's one of the areas where I insist to ensure that every measure has been taken so that the venues are full, all tickets are sold and, and, and so on. So, I think that there is no doubt that the live presence of spectators is fundamental for broadcasting. Now, there are a number of efforts to replicate that act either by virtualizing the presence of spectators or virtualizing the audio. And to some extent, uh, 
you know, all these things uh, help, but they cannot replicate the real thing. If anything, they cannot replicate what the athletes get from a live uh, environment. But if this is the way that we have to go, this is the way that we have to go. Allow me to say, though, on an additional personal emotional level, that if spectators are important um, for any sport, in the Olympics, I think their presence gets an entirely new dimension. If the Games is above anything and beyond sport, a celebration of humanity coming together, athletes from all over the world, spectators and fans from all over the world coming together in the Olympic venues is also the complete, true, deep, emotional picture of the Games. So there have been there have been uh, cases of that for one reason or another, a venue or an event, a sport event had to take place without spectators. And at the end of the day, that that's fine. But I feel that that for the Olympics, especially, this is such a fundamental part of the um, of the authenticity of the games that really it will be uh, for me. Of course, we can do the job, and of course, I'm sure we will do a very, very good coverage, and we will adapt, and we will be closer to the athletes, and so on. But uh, really, if we are forced with, with an absence of, of spectators, and again, we don't know that, of course, uh, I think we will all miss uh, something there. I hope that this will not happen, but I think in events with such a huge emotional um, undercurrent like the Olympics, they, they are more necessary probably than in, in other areas. Uh, in the few minutes we've got left uh, with Yanis Exarchos, uh, let's talk about the Olympic Channel, your other big production. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's grown so much since... 2016, when you first launched uh, uh, the, the the streaming, the the content on the Olympic Channel, uh, you become known for live coverage of sports events around the world. That you know, you just ha have expanded the 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 way people can can see these events. But no no live coverage now. When do you expect that to happen? When do you expect that to change? Of course, this, this has cost us because, uh, as you correctly say, the, the Olympic Channel has been um, a, a creation of the vision of the of the IOC and, and the president to maintain uh, 24 by 7 in between the games, the, the conduct of, uh, of uh, fans around the world, especially younger fans with, with Olympic sports. And, of course, live events are fundamental for that. And I think the variety and the thousands of events that the channel has covered is really unprecedented. And then all of a sudden, that there was a, there was a stop in that. That obviously was a was a shock to us. Um, it depends on when the events of the federations will start coming back. Hopefully, uh, near the end uh, of the summer. However, I must note something interesting because you know the channel, as you said, has grown a lot in these four years. We have gone many different directions, different models of distribution, different countries. We have explored different partnerships, we linear, digital, and so on. So we have also a lot of experience and indicators. What is interesting that we see in these last three months is, of course, the Olympic Channel as every entity, as every media entity, 
that um, uh, carries primarily sports has uh, has felt a hit, you know, uh, in terms of the of the attraction. However, it's interesting that in the channel. Uh, this is not happening to the extent that it's happening to some other broadcast media entities that are very focused only on live events. As you know, the channel is a combination of live events and storytelling around athletes. So this second part that the channel does with a lot of intensity and, and in a comprehensive way seems to have maintained essentially the core of the audience. So I compare the channel this uh, last May had more audience than it had in the May of the previous year. Of course, it's a platform that is growing, but it has slightly more audience. If we had events, probably would have two and a half or three times the audience that we had last year. But it's interesting to note that there is a baseline that has to do with the storytelling around the athletes that the channel manages to retain itself. This is not necessarily the case for many uh, sports media that are solely devoted to, to covering events. Now, in, in July and August, uh, without, without Olympic Games, what, what kind of programming will the Olympic Channel be able to offer? And, and, you, and you're not there to cover live co- provide live coverage of the Olympic Games. That's the job of the, uh, of the broadcasters to do. On one hand, uh, uh, you mean for next year? For this year, for for, for July, July and July and August. First of all, since uh, the first weeks of the um, of the stop of the freezing of sport events, we have created two channels on the Olympic Channel, which are devoted on uh, Olympic ceremonies and on very very important historical. Uh, finals like you know the or, or, or a sport event from the history of the games like the games of the dream, dream team in Barcelona and and so on that have maintained the interest I think of uh, of uh, a few also what we are doing is understanding the uh, whole environment during this period the channel has been pivotal and central in actually feeding. Uh, the wider IOC campaign uh, behind Stay Strong. This has been a massive campaign with, uh, I think now we have had more than 250 um, uh, million uh, interactions across all different platforms that we operate during the last month and a half that we are carrying this campaign. So this is a campaign where uh, we embrace athletes from around the world to inspire people to stay active during the days of confinement, to to inspire and help people also maintain their their mental balance and and health during this period. And this was an area that we felt was necessary from a values point of view for us to promote. As you know, we have the Olympic Day coming up in a few days, and then we will have the one year to go uh, for the games that will eventually take place um, in uh, 2021. So we have a lot of preparation and ideas around these two uh, milestone days, and the channel, of course, will be central in the wider IOC effort to to highlight these efforts. I need to say also that with um, uh, the current conversation and the current discussions, 
and uh, focus of the world on issues like inclusivity, like fighting racism. Um, one cannot imagine, of course, the trigger may have been, uh, you know, an extremely sad, infuriating event, but the conversation is very important and the conversation speaks directly to what the IOC and the Olympics are about. They're all about inclusivity. The brand of the Olympic Games is about uh, interlocking uh, humans from all different continents is what the five rings are. So I feel that for us, this will become the issue of inclusivity uh, as performed and as practiced and as uh, um, uh, showcased by sport will increasingly become a central theme in the weeks and months uh, to come because uh, sports is one thing but olympic values is a wider thing olympic values i think are important for every human being not just the core sports fans or the athletes themselves so myself and i think the team and the ioc starting with the president are very keen I think on highlighting this parameter, on highlighting uh, what the work of sports is, what the work of Olympics is, and how all these bring the world together rather than dividing them. And I think now it's more important than ever. Yeah, finally, the uncertainty still exists over over Tokyo that conditions could could worsen, could change, and and prevent the games from from being held in Tokyo. It sounds like you are planning for Olympic Games next year, and that that is the, the course of action. And to be very honest, and we have to be, I think, very fair there to our uh, Japanese hosts, one can imagine a few hosts around the world that would be more reliable and more professional and more uh, on the ball to deliver games under such complex circumstances. We have been saying that, and the, the president has been saying that he cannot recall any uh, organizing committee or any city being uh, as ready, as early and as well as Tokyo has been. And that is an additional uh, tool in ensuring that the games will be delivered. This is, we're talking about an extraordinary country, an extraordinary capability of an organizing committee, extremely disciplined, uh, highly sophisticated, highly educated, highly capable. This is a huge source of certainty for the delivery. Giannis Exarchos, thanks very much for being with us today on Around the Rings Radio. It's been a great conversation and You've got a lot of work to do, and we wish you the best of luck moving ahead here. Thank you so much, Ed. It's been great talking to you, and hopefully uh, we will be chatting a year from now. I'm not sure you will arrive that early, but as soon as you <laughs> arrive in Tokyo, I will be happy to show you around the IBC and show you the new things we are doing. We look forward to, we look forward to seeing you there, and uh, again, uh, best wishes to everybody. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio with Giannis Exarchos, Director of Olympic Broadcasting Services. I'm your host, Ed Hula. Be calm, be safe. For more than 30 years, your best source of news about the Olympics is AroundTheRings.com. <laughs>